0: So, so glad that you're here. You came back after last week. That's awesome. Nobody scared you away. That's fantastic. So anyway, how did you enjoy your first lesson? Did you find it hard? You had a big overview chart to put together. It was not as long though, was it? It was pretty short. I think nine questions, not a lot of reading. So that was a soft start. couple weeks from now it's going to be a little bit more intense but next week also is a little bit of a soft start we're going to today we're going to talk about an overview of the pentateuch and then next week we're going to talk about sort of a, from 30,000 feet what is redemption what is god's unfolding plan of redemption one thing that's going to be a little bit different this year when we start diving into these big chap lessons that have like 8 or 10 chapters to read sometimes i'm not going to teach on everything that's in your lesson this year. Uh, that would be so boring for you, and we would only be able to, to touch the surface of those lessons. And so this year, the way I, I'm going to be teaching is to actually take some aspects of the lesson and go really deep. So you might read five or six chapters of Genesis, and I will land on one or two parts of that, and we'll go deep and try to get on the ground in those stories and feel what it felt like and get some things that we can apply to our lives, but it's not going to be comprehensive. So you still will have, you will have lots of great things to talk about in your groups that I don't even touch on, but um, I just it's the best way, I think, to have the greatest experience together in the teaching time. Just to let you know, that's going to be a little different than we've done in the past. But today, what I want to do is give you a brief overview of the Pentateuch. So what I'd love to do is first talk about the beginnings, which is the book of Genesis. And then I want to talk about the man Moses that will touch on his life will be really seen best Exodus through Deuteronomy. So just kind of want to touch on a few things to give us a high level view of what we're going to be talking about this year as we go through this study. So let's talk about Genesis. What is Genesis about? Well, it starts, the word Genesis actually means beginnings, and so Genesis means the beginning. Where did it all begin? Where, where was God in the creation of the world? How was man formed? And what happened along the way? It may actually surprise you that Genesis is not meant to be a fully detailed explanation, scientifically um, filled with data, about how life actually began—how the planet was formed, how mankind was made, how the animals, the trees, the seas—it's not meant to be an exhaustive explanation of the scientific process of creation. It's actually meant to be a revelation of God's character. When we read Genesis, we read Genesis to know God, not to find all of the answers to our questions about how the world began. In Genesis, we see God's majesty. We see His tenderness. We see His kindness. We see His love for individual people. We see His rulership over the universe at large. We see so many different facets of who God is as we study Genesis. Genesis is also the place where we begin to get some foundational truths that help us understand our world, help us understand our existence as human beings on this planet. What we learn, for example, in, in the beginning is just that God is a triune God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the very start of Genesis 1, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit at work forming the earth. We also learn that man was made in God's image, male and female. The Bible tells us that we were made in the image of God. That's really significant for our identity. We learn that... Um, marriage was actually God's design. God was the inventor of marriage, and he talks about that very early on in Genesis as Adam and Eve entered into a marriage covenant relationship. We also learn that Adam and Eve had a choice to make whether to obey or disobey God's instructions. They had independence. They had will. They were able to make deliberate choices to either obey His spoken word or not to obey it. And we learn early on that they actually chose to disobey God's spoken word, and then we see what happened as a result of that. We call that the fall, the fall into sin, which then affected the DNA of mankind from that moment forward. So we know that people now are born into the world, and there's a predisposition for us to sin or to want to live our lives independently or in rebellion to God's word. Paul says, why do I do the things I ought not to do and don't do the things I ought to do? And isn't that how we live our lives? We we live our lives in this struggle with trying to bring our our wills in alignment with God's word and His revelation. Um, it's it's an ongoing problem. We see that so often, don't we? In two year olds, you know, who are born and so quickly before they even see their parents act this way, they say mine, 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 and they just have this strong disposition towards selfishness. But in Genesis also is where we receive the very first promises for a plan of redemption, a promise that God makes that he's going to reach into the brokenness of the world and he's going to buy it back unto himself. He's going to restore man's relationship with God by bringing a Redeemer, a Messiah, a Savior. And from the beginning in Genesis 3.15, we see his, his plan and his promise to restore that which was broken by the problem of sin. Also, we receive our first revelation that God has a plan for himself and mankind to live together in eternity, that he has a plan to bring this redemption to a place where man can enter into an eternal relationship with God. So who wrote Genesis? You got to answer that in your, in your lessons this week. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament confirm that Moses was the writer of Genesis which might surprise you. You might think, well, I see how he wrote Exodus through Deuteronomy because that is a story about his life. But how did he write Genesis? And we'll talk about that in in a few minutes. But the first five books of the Bible are considered one. They go together. The Jews call that the Torah. It's their first five books that they studied very intentionally. We call it the Pentateuch. That is a Latin or a Greek word that means five scrolls or five volumes. And it's considered that all five of these were written by one person. They all are a set. And so that one person is is Moses. In Mark 12.26, he calls it the book of Moses. In Luke 2.22, it's called the law of Moses. And though Moses isn't Named anywhere in particular in Genesis as the author, there are not only some scriptural proofs that he was the author, but there are also some historical proofs that he was the author. So let me share some of those with you. So you can be convinced from many different vantage points that Moses is the author of these five books. First of all, Moses was qualified to be the author. He was Uh, the adopted son of Pharaoh. He grew up in Egypt. He grew up in the palace. He was very, very educated. He knew how to read and how to write. And so it seems very natural that he would have been the writer of the things that he experienced. Um, Certainly, he wrote the Exodus story about what it was like to take the people out of Egypt and all of his relationship with God going through the, the wilderness. He had the experience as well um, as we study. Moses was the most prominent person from at least Exodus through Deuteronomy. He was the most prominent person in that story. So he was writing about things that he actually experienced. He had the time to write the Pentateuch because he spent 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years without Netflix, 40 years without cell phones, 40 years without TV to watch or anything to do. He had, can you imagine the time that he must have had that he could have elaborately recorded his experiences, and so he had lots of time to write. But also God instructed Moses to write, and Moses had a pattern of obeying God. In Exodus 17, 14, um, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. In Exodus 24, 4, it says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He obeyed. In Deuteronomy 31:24 through 26, it said, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. When we read the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, it's assumed by the Old Testament writers that Moses was the writer of the Pentateuch of the of the law, it's called. In Joshua 1, 7 through 8, Joshua it says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Also, the New Testament writers upheld that same understanding that Moses was the author. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Romans 10.5 For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Jesus the ultimate, I think, trustworthy source, spoke of Moses as the writer of the law. He said in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then Jesus also says that Moses, again, wrote about him in John 5, 46-47. He said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So it's pretty clear, wouldn't you say, that Moses is the writer of the law or of the first five books of the Bible. So then we might say, well, how did he write Genesis? Because as far as I'm concerned, he wasn't there, right? He wasn't—nobody was there. How did he write Genesis? How did he write chapter one? We must think, where did he get that information? Well, we don't know, actually, how he wrote Genesis, we, there are some, some ideas. Um, we know What we do know is that Adam used to walk with God in the garden, especially before sin, before Adam and Eve fell into sin. We don't know how much time there was before they fell into sin, but we know that there was a pattern early on that Adam used to walk with God and talk with God in the garden. Did God reveal at that time to Adam how he created the world? Certainly God told Adam to name the animals. He educated him about the garden. He told him many things we know. He told him which trees to eat from and which trees not to eat from. God was giving Adam a lot of instruction during that time. So did did God tell Adam how he created the world? If he did, then certainly Adam would have told his children who would have told his children who would have told his children, because in those days there wasn't writing and reading. And so history, especially history as vital as this, was passed on very carefully from one generation to the next. So it's possible that this oral history, these oral traditions were carefully passed on until this time when documents could have been written and it could have been preserved and more people could then have access to it. Scholars actually believe that Joseph was a person who may have compiled this oral history and written this oral history when he was in Egypt. As we get into the story of Joseph, we'll see there was a time that he was in Egypt, a very strategic time in God's overall plan. It could have been then, as he is in this place where education is is highly valued, that he was writing and he was recording much of this oral history that had been passed on through his family in particular. But it's also possible, and then, of course, we know Moses was in Egypt, right? So Moses could have then gotten those documents from Joseph at a later time. But it's also possible that God gave Moses or Adam just a vision. And that may seem sort of out of the ordinary, and yet we know that the book of Revelation is a vision that God gave to the apostle John about the end of the world. Could God not have given a vision to Adam or to Moses about the beginning of the world, maybe even to see the six days of creation rolling before him, we don't know. That's the thing, we don't know. But we trust that what we read is true, that that there was information that was passed to Moses that he recorded as God intended for him to record. Now, I wanna talk about how Genesis is organized, because this is very interesting. The first 11 chapters of Genesis record four creation events, and these events, I won't ask a poll, how many of you believe they were millions of years and how many believe they were thousands of years? That's the quickest way to divide any group of people who are interested in Genesis because we have varying opinions about that. Some believe in the scientific theory of creation and believe that all of the first 11 chapters happened over millions and millions of years. Some believe the young earth theory, which means that all of that happened over thousands of years. I think when we get to heaven, we can ask God, can you tell us in time how you created? And I'm sure that what he tells us will take us all by surprise, but none of us will be disappointed. We'll think it's amazing no matter what he says, right? But most importantly, in those first 11 chapters, four key events happen creation happens, the fall into sin happens. The flood, Noah's ark, the flood happens, and then the dispersion happens. That's when the people were coming together and trying to build a tower to reach up to God, and he dispersed them throughout the earth. That was the Tower of Babel. That happens in the first 11 chapters. Then in chapters 12 through 50, there are, these are chapters where we actually know the time historically. These chapters took place over a period of 300 years. We know this. We have historical data for this. And in these chapters, they record the personalities of four great patriarchs. Uh, there was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But I, I want you to note that it's really significant that there are 11 chapters devoted to the creation of the world events And there are 39 chapters devoted to God's personal relationship with these men. And I think that's very significant because, again, Genesis is not meant to give us exhaustive knowledge about how the world was created and all of these events that happened early on. It's to give us sufficient knowledge to believe that He is the Creator and we are the created and He has a plan. But the chapters that we get, these 39 chapters in Genesis, God is revealing to us His character— He's revealing to us who he is and how much he loves people and how much he is intimately involved in a relationship with people. And he's telling the story of who he is and what his plan is for human history through this relationship he has with these patriarchs and with his people Israel. And that is very, very important because God wants us to know Him and He wants us to know how much He cares for us and how concerned He is for us. And so that's the first truth that I want to share with you tonight is just that God wants us to know Him intimately. He wants us to know Him. He gave us His word so that we could know Him. I do think that sometimes when we read Genesis, we're stimulated with so many more questions than um, we can find answers to. I want to know, did God make the world in six literal days or six figurative days? You know, we read it and we say, wait, how did you do this? And and there's so many, you know, you could, with our information overload society, you can Google it and find a million contradicting data points about how it all happened. But we actually just really don't know. But God wants us to know Him. That's what He wants us to know. He wants us to know how much He loves us. He wants us to... Ha- to understand how we've come to actually live on this planet that we've been born into. He wants us to know why there's so much pain and suffering and rebellion in the world, why there's sin. He wants us to understand how we can have hope for healing, for wholeness, for redemption, how we can actually experience beauty in the midst of the brokenness. And so Genesis invites us to know God and just to understand some of these foundational truths in life. In fact, when we know some of these things, it gives us a lens or perspective from which to understand what we experience every day in our world. It makes sense why there's evil and why there's pain and there's suffering and why there's beauty and creativity. And, and so we begin to understand our world with this foundation. It's so important for how we, we walk through each day and see what we see and know how to, how to understand it. We talked last week about the accelerated change of our world and how our world is so vastly different than it was 50 years ago, and so vastly different than it was when Jesus was walking the earth, and so even more different than it was back in the days of Moses. And in this barrage of of information overload, God is still calling our names. He is still reaching out to us. He is still inviting us to know Him intimately. He wants an intimate relationship with us. He already knows us intimately. He's wanting us to know Him intimately. He knows He knows what our busy lives are doing to us. He knows how the messages of the world are, are bombarding our minds with thoughts that are not true thoughts or not tr- thoughts that are edifying or sanctifying. He knows why we veg out at night on TV and Netflix. He knows why. He knows what kind of things we're bearing that we were really ever, never built to bear because we're living in such a world of pain and and sorrow and sin. He sees how the brokenness of the world is impacting our souls, and yet he's reaching out, he's inviting us, come walk with me, come talk with me. He wants us to have the kind of relationship that He enjoyed with Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. And that is possible through Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we can live in fellowship with Him and we can experience Him redeeming the broken places of our lives, bringing healing to some of those things, this side of the grave. So whether you're, you're new in your relationship with God or whether you've been walking with Him for a long time, God is seeking to draw you into greater intimacy with Him this year. We never arrive, maybe when we see him face-to-face, but this side of heaven, we are always being wooed by him into a deeper level of knowing him, a deeper level of trusting him, a deeper level of surrendering to him. He's inviting us into this relationship and calling us along the way to trust him and obey him in new ways, to believe in him with all of our strength, mind, spirit, and soul. So how would you like to grow in intimacy if you think about your life? How would you like to grow in intimacy in your walk with God this year? In my own life, I've been experiencing, I would say, especially in the last three months or so, a much greater sense of intimacy with God as I've been so confronted with with my human frailty. Some of it has been physical because um, I just... I just don't have the physical resources to meet the demands of my life, trying to heal from knee replacement surgery. Some of it has been just learning how to be more dependent on my husband or on other people just to care for me in places where I just I just don't have what it takes. But mostly then that turns me to the Lord and I'm seeing him show up in in ways to really help me during this season. It's also been a really full ministry season for me. I I was teaching a a retreat at another church all weekend and really pouring out his word to another group of women. And it it was really beyond me in every capacity. And I brought my best, but he had to show up and he had to provide and he had to unlock hearts and he had to do what only he could do. And so he's been calling me to things that are just beyond me. And I feel like I bring my little offering And then he shows up with so much grace and so much power and so much victory that is only his. But in that space between what I come with and what he provides, my faith is soaring because I am seeing him. Only he and I know the gap. (laughs) And my faith is soaring as I see him providing. And as I'm stepping out and trusting him and surrendering to him in deeper ways than I ever have, I am growing in intimacy with him. And I feel like it's in, that, it's in that place of faith and trust where we grow in deepest intimacy. When he, when he calls us to trust him or calls us to believe in a new way or calls us to step out and serve in a new way, when we do that, that's where he comes in and he, he provides, he proves trustworthy, he provides for our needs in such a way that we then trust him more and we know him more and we experience him more closely. And so it's an amazing transformation of our own hearts. It's an amazing transformation of our own souls. And um, we never get done growing in this way. He is always working to call us into greater faith and spiritual maturity. How do you want to grow in that way this year? Well, as we look at the next section, as we look at the man of Moses, we're going to see how his character was totally transformed as he followed God and and really experienced transformation in some major areas of his life. When I was thinking about Moses, I was thinking about a book that I read one time called, um, from, it's called Halftime by Bob Buford. Has anybody read that book? Yeah, okay. So it's about from success to significance. And what he talks about in that book is how the first half of our lives, we tend to be chasing after success. And there can be many great things we we, talk, we get educated careers, marriage, family we buy houses we buy cars we're kind of just piling up success it's what we're focused on but then there's this place about halfway through your life where you realize that that's pretty futile like careers can fail families can be disappointing. You can lose your house. Actually, houses just decay, right? You're always fixing things that you buy, and it's just not really fulfilling. And he talks about how we long for significance in the second half of our life, how we want to do something of such great value that once we're gone, there's something lasting that's left behind. And I think about Moses because Moses was a guy who did not have a lot of success in the first half of his life, but he had multitudes of significance in the second part of his life. Moses was a man um, who grew so much in faith, and he developed a life of fervent prayer. He had deep humility, and he had tremendous courage. And so I thought we'd start by getting to know him a little bit better before we dive into reading more of what he wrote. First of all, his faith is actually mentioned 37 times in the New Testament. And in Hebrews 11, which is considered the hallmark of faith, he is spoken of quite a bit. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 11, 24 through 29. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Time and time again, Moses exhibited faith, and Hebrews 11.1 describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Even as we look at that record of Moses' faith, God continually called Moses to things where he stepped in and obeyed but didn't really know how it was going to turn out right? He didn't know. There was, there was no guarantee when he stepped out in faith that things were going to work out the way he hoped. And that's the gap of faith where he believed and he, he trusted. And then God did his work. It was the conviction of things not yet seen. How would you like your faith to be strengthened this year? How are you in trusting, in stepping out, in taking a leap Depending on God and things where you don't quite know how the story's going to end. Would you like your faith to grow and be more like Moses's? Moses also was an amazing prayer, 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 prayer warrior. Let's just say that. That's a little bit easier. Prayer, prayer. How do you say that? I don't know. Prayer. But he was, okay, he was a prayer warrior. I like that better. <laughs> Now, we know prayer is simply talking to God. It's not rocket science, right? It's just talking to God. It's not that hard. But, but often when we talk to God, we talk to God most about our own circumstances. We talk about our lives. We're always lifting up our needs, oftentimes even telling God, this is what I want. This is what I've planned, and this is what I want you to do for me. But Moses wasn't like that. Moses had such an interesting prayer life. He was frequently, mostly, beseeching God for the people that he was leading, he was passionate about the Israelites, and he often just pleaded with God to be merciful to the Israelites when they were getting themselves in all kinds of messes. At one point in their relationship, the Israelites had promised that God was their God, and he, he, he was their God, and they were his people, and they had made this covenant relationship. And then on the heels of that, they then began to worship a golden calf, which is what they used to worship in Egypt. And at that moment, they were deserving of death and Moses was so desperate before the God, before the before God in prayer that he said that he would be willing to give up his own salvation if God would just be merciful to these people and not leave them not abandon them or not kill them and so Moses was that way like he 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 prayed fervently for the people that he was leading The other thing about Moses that we're going to discover is that he had this really authentic relationship with God. It was as if they were, at times, friends, the way they talked to each other. He would be just real with God, very candid. He would talk about his struggles and his thoughts. And you could see this engagement. It's it's as though they really knew each other. And we're going to see that as we see their relationship. There was a vulnerability and an ease that came through in their prayer life. And this is the the model of the kind of prayer life that we're invited into because of Christ. We are able to speak to Jesus as a friend, to be able to talk with him, to be able to listen to him, um, to be able to have a relationship, to cultivate a relationship of familiarity and intimacy. And, and this is something that grows as we mature in our faith. You know, when we start off praying, we sometimes say prayers that we've memorized or we use language that we would never really use in real life but it's just what we know or what we've heard and then as we grow in our faith we begin to talk and relax and and imagine the one that we're talking to because we know his character and we've we've experienced him in our lives and there's an intimacy and a vulnerability that grows in our prayer life how would you like your prayer life to grow this year how would you like to be able to enjoy talking to God more comfortably, more frequently, more regularly, more, more that constant conscious communion, you know, where you just have the sense of his presence every day, wherever you are, you know he's with you. Moses is gonna teach us about prayer. Moses also was such a humble man. In fact, um, he's known as the most humble man on the face of the earth, which I actually think is hilarious because Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Who who wrote that statement? (laughs) Well, Moses wrote it, but he wrote it at the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure he was like, oh, please don't make me write this. It's going to sound so prideful. But It's spoken of many times in other places that he was humble. And Moses foreshadows Christ to us in many ways. The humility of Moses to lead his people, to suffer for his people, to plead and intercede for his people is what Jesus Christ does for us. And that humility is a characteristic of Christ that we see in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which says that that Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Moses' humility gives us a taste of what the Messiah's humility is going to be when he leaves the throne room of heaven, is born into human flesh, and then dies on a cross for the sins of mankind. But you know what? When we get to know Moses, we're going to find out he didn't start off as a very humble person. Um, He actually made a lot of mistakes and um, he was not very courageous and courage is the fourth quality that I want to look at because he actually um, didn't have a great track record until he was 80 years old. It's 80 years old before God did miraculous things in his life. There are different stages of his life where he was overconfident in himself, lacked confident because of his, his mistakes, and then became confident in God. The f- stages that I see is when Moses was between the ages of zero and 40, let's say, he was pretty overconfident in himself. That was the time where he got kind of riled up, maybe some of that testosterone was raging and he got mad when he saw a guard abusing a Jew and he actually killed the guard, the Egyptian guard. He murdered him. That really caused him then to go through a season of 40 years of feeling very unconfident, incompetent, insecure, shameful, whatever we want to say. He then fled away to the wilderness, he hid away from being punished for his crime, and he just kind of hid from God for 40 years. He wandered in the wilderness, started a family, but just had a very low-on-the-radar kind of life. And then God called him, the burning bush incident, to go and be his servant leader in Egypt and free his people. And that didn't happen until he was 80 years old. And so what we'll read from Exodus through Deuteronomy is from the years 80 to 120. Amazing. Now, I can imagine... The things that we're going to see Moses do are things that would make any of us shake in our boots. Certainly, we would never be able to do them in our own strength. Moses even said he was a man who didn't have the ease of speaking, and it was hard for him to speak, and yet he had to stand before the most powerful man on the planet and tell him, Oh, by the way, God wants your whole entire workforce to be freed to go worship me on a mountain. He had to come before Pharaoh with his own insecurities and how he was babbling, he didn't didn't speak clearly, and over time and time again, make these requests of Pharaoh. But his confidence wasn't in himself, his confidence was in God. He then had to take a whole nation of people and live with them in the wilderness for 40 years, take them through the wilderness. It wasn't supposed to be 40 years, but because of their sinfulness, they didn't get to go to the promised land as quickly as they were meant to. But taking these people through the wilderness, he had no plan. He had no food. He had no water. There was no plan to how to get rid of refuse, how to have protect them, um, where to live, where to dwell. And yet he didn't do that in his own power and strength. He did that in God's power and strength, that he was confident in God, who in their right mind would do that without, if they were confident in themselves. Um, so he was his courage came as he was stepping into the call that God placed on his life and trusting in God. We go through, I think, similar stages of our life of confidence and insecurity or shame and confidence in God. Maybe you can think about your own life. My life doesn't break as neatly into the 40-year sections, (laughs) but um, zero to 20, I was pretty confident in myself. I knew God. I believed that he existed, but I thought the world had a better idea of how to live, and I listened to the messages of the world, and I lived my life. It was the 60s, so you know how the world was pretty strong at speaking messages of independence and rebellion and all that kind of stuff, and I just bought right into that. And then when I was 21, just right before I turned 21, when I was graduating from college, I realized that was not making me happy. That was not making me into the person I wanted to become. And so I really surrendered my life to the Lord at the age of 21 and put Him as the captain of my ship. But then from ages 21 to, I think, really about 39, if I'm going to be honest, it was a battle because there are a lot of really bad things that happened in my life after I put Him as the captain of my ship. Right away, one of the first things that happened, I was hit by a drunk driver. It was a serious car accident. I met my husband. Um, Our first years of marriage were brutal, painful. Um, That was tough. Our son was diagnosed with a devastating disease. Like these super, super hard things came into my life after I'd already put the Lord at the helm of my ship. And so during those years, those were years where I kept fighting with the Lord. Like I wanted to keep taking it back. I was thinking things weren't going so well with him at the helm of my ship. I won't put myself back on the helm of my ship. And that meant I could live my life how I wanted. I could actually leave my husband. I didn't have to stay in this marriage. I was in this wrestling match, back and forth, wrestling with who was going to rule my life. And then finally, by the time I would say solidly, when I was 39, I committed myself fully to obeying the Lord no matter what, not with the promise that it was all going to work out, but with the conviction that no matter what, I needed to obey God and that there would be blessing in my life if I did, even if I wasn't happy in different aspects of my life. And so that really became the season where I placed my confidence in God. And that has been the season ever since where I promised that I would obey him no matter what, whatever he called me to, and um, my life has been not easy, um, but definitely rich with a kind of blessing that I haven't really experienced in since, since I gave it all to him. And so maybe you can think of your life, and maybe you're in one stage or the other even right now, and maybe you're in stage one where you're feeling pretty confident in yourself and, and you feel kind of like, I got this, and you might believe in God, but you might feel like you're not really ready to relinquish you know, lordship of your life to Him, and you maybe want to get to know Him better, but you're wrestling with who's going to be captain of your ship. Or maybe you're like in stage two where you've actually been in some really hard times and you're hiding away. You're like, I, I'm going out to the desert, I'm going out to the wilderness like Moses did in the second season. Maybe you're wrestling with God or maybe you're feeling shameful and not sure that God can really love you after some of the decisions that you've made. Um, maybe um, you're feeling stuck. Maybe you feel like you're in a dry desert in some aspect of your life and you're just stuck there and you don't really know how to get onto to the next stage or the next season. Maybe you're in stage three, which is you're in a place of confident trust, and you've seen God prove to be trustworthy and faithful. You have been in some hard places, or maybe you haven't been in hard places, and but you've seen God provide, and you've seen God bless, and you've seen God, um, when you've stepped out in scary places, you've seen him show up and guide you through, and you're feeling really confident in who he is, and you're just wanting to grow, and you're wanting to worship, and you're wanting to know more about him and you're ready to have the courage to do that because you know that He loves you. So the point is is that our character is transformed by our relationship with God. We're changed by our relationship with Him. That's because He's God and we're not. (laughs) I don't know that there's anything more transforming than a relationship with God because He changes us. And as we embark on the study of the Pentateuch, we're gonna be really challenged as Moses was to believe God, to trust him at his word, to actually obey what he says. Um, he's got good things for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And Moses, we're going to see people like not only Moses, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all of the other characters in between. We're going to see how they were changed in their relationship with God. We you think about your own character for just a moment? And if you think about these four things that I mentioned, if you think about, about faith, and prayer, and humility, and courage, which one, just one of those things, do you feel like you would like to grow most in? I I bet you can think of it pretty quickly, because we kind of always know that place where we're struggling. And I want to challenge you to make that a prayer request for your group. Tonight, actually, you're going to get some prayer cards from your leaders, and they're just for you to write a, a request, a personal request. But maybe one of these four words comes to mind, and you can invite your group. You know, pray that I'll just have more courage, or they'll have a more consistent prayer life, or that I'll just be truly humble, or that um, I'll have stronger faith. I'll be able to trust God in the hard places. Invite your group to come in and pray for you because. I hope this is a year where we just really grow in our faith. If you'll stand, we're going to worship one song together with our great, amazing team, and then you're going to get to go to your groups. I'll pray for us. Father, I'm just so thankful for your word, thankful for what you have revealed to us. I'm thankful for what you teach us and show us in a man like Moses. I'm thankful that um, we know you better. And also, I just am so grateful for how you're constantly drawing us to yourself. Just coming out here on a Tuesday night, gathering with these women after a full day, Lord, I know this is because you're drawing us to yourself. You want us to know you more. And so I pray, Lord, that you would meet us in our discussions and in our worship and um, encourage our hearts to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.